Support for NPR and the following message come from Ally. While you're working hard, is your money being lazy? Make your money work harder than ever with Ally's new smart savings tools. For all things money, you deserve an Ally. Visit ally.com. Ally Bank member FDIC. For the last few years, Disney has been turning its beloved animated films into live-action revamps, a project that continues apace with The Lion King. But this revamp isn't live action, even though it looks like it is. The digital animation is ridiculously advanced, bringing Simba, Mufasa, Scar, Nala, Timon, and Pumbaa to eerie, ultra-realistic life. It looks great, and the voice cast is full of ringers. Chiwetel Ejiofor, John Oliver, Billy Eichner, Seth Rogen, Donald Glover, and a brash up-and-comer named Beyonce. But do the changes they make to the story and to the songs we have thoughts improve on the original? I'm Stephen Thompson. That's what we're going to hash out on this episode of Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon. Here with us in the studio is writer Katie Presley. Hey, Katie. Howdy. And joining us from the New York Times is Aisha Harris. Hey, Aisha. Hello, hello. All right. Now, I am happy, and I think it's very refreshing. We can spoil the hell out of this thing because uh, this is... since 1994. Exactly. This is largely a beat-by-beat retread of a story that has seeped into the cultural consciousness. So, uh, on the off chance that you don't know The Lion King because you spent the last 25 years off the grid, and this podcast is reaching you through your fillings and your molars somehow, uh, here's the story. Hamlet with fur. There's the story. We're done. So, Aisha, I'm going to start with you. What'd you make of the new Lion King? Well, when the trailer first came out a few months ago, I tweeted something to the fact that the trailer looked like they had basically taken the audio of the original film and dubbed it over like a, a really uncanny episode of Planet Earth. Right. And I feel like the remake is exactly the same. These opening, Circle of Life, which what I remember seeing as a child and being just stunned and in awe of it. And I think I've seen it enough times to know that I'm like 99% sure that this remake uh, is a basically a shot for shot mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. Circle of Life. Even like down to the timing of the way in which these things, uh, all the shots happen and, and everything look exactly the same. And so I came away with this basically meh. Like, that was my reaction overall. (laughs) When compared to something like Aladdin, the remake that came out two months ago, this was far and away much better. But I... I found the the singing to be just okay, especially Donald Glover. I was kind of disappointed. I thought he would be like a little bit stronger in the singing department. And I also just found it weird to watch these very, very realistic characters in dramatic moments and have no real facial expression. <laughs> what was lost in the creation of this very realistic animation is actual expressiveness. In right. the original, you know, the faces, the eyes would move. Uh, when Mufasa dies, you can see see Simba's face just like his eyes well up and here you know the voice acting I think is there so the actor who plays young Simba who's voiced by J.D. McCrary he I think does a really great job in the acting department and like there's a moment where his voice cracks and like I wanted to feel that I wanted to be like I wanted to feel as though Mufasa dying was like the first time I'd seen it and I didn't because while that was happening Simba's face was just like dead Um, so (laughs) cat face (laughs) yeah so overall (laughs) overall my my feeling about this was that it just like 
feels hollow. The, yeah. You know, Timon and Pumbaa, I think, were by far the best parts just because they were funny and there were a lot of ad-libs that weren't in the original film. Right. Absolutely. Katie, what'd you think? I agree with Aisha. And I would also add my big takeaway was viscera because of the realism and also the emotion, which I am sure we all have thoughts on, there is a lot more anger in this film, a lot more darkness, like visceral kind of the organ meat equivalent of emotions shows up a lot in this. Mummy. <laughs> exactly. And, and also there's a lot more individual cat hairs blowing in the breeze. You know, wet cat tech has like come a long way. <laughs> and also that visceralness, you go into this movie thinking... I'm going to watch a lion get trampled to death. Mm -hmm. And so, like, my hands were sweaty when Simba was born because I knew it was going to be like watching a large, real cat get mauled. I can't imagine giving this movie to a child the way that you gave me in 1994, Lion King. And, like, here you go, kiddo. Here is exactly what it probably looks like to drop a large cat from a great height. <laughs> and then this, like, adorable little kitten, which Disney has taught us to anthropomorphize. Right is going to go touch its dead bod. You know, like, that was, it was hard for me. It, like, this movie is earthy. 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 <laughs> Steven, follow earthy. <laughs> he's, been, he's been trying since the day we met. <laughs> you know, I have, uh, I have had a complicated relationship with The Lion King, uh, dating back to its release in June of 1994. A little bit of personal background. My own father died on May 23rd, 1994. Oh, the Lion King came out on June 15th, 1994. I had strong feelings yeah, about this is it. Daddy Issues the Movie. Daddy basically. Issues the Movie, yeah. which have never subsided. Mm -hmm. So every time I see the original Lion King, I have the exact same emotionally visceral response and even seeing this remake with all the flaws that you guys have very accurately laid out I still react to the story and this particular telling of that Hamlet story in a very I get pulled into it very, very quickly and very, very effectively. So I generally on balance think this was an effective kind of different way of presenting this story with all those same flaws that you've mentioned. The photorealism does not always suit this story. Mostly it comes, I come back to the same issues that I've had with the other live action slash quote unquote live action Disney remakes, which is why mm -hmm. they don't necessarily answer the question of why. And then I think there are nitpicks all the way through. There are voice acting choices that I like and voice acting choices that I dislike. And Glenn, you and I are going to talk about Scar. Yes, we oh, are. We're all going to talk about <laughs> Scar. <laughs> I just, as long as I have known Glenn, I have known Glenn to have a strong connection to the original Jeremy Irons voiced Scar. Uh -huh. This particular Scar, as voiced by Chiwetel Ejiofor, I didn't quite understand the choice to make this particular Scar so joyless and rageful. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, we have a, a little bit of tape. So let's go back. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back. Let's get a taste, a sousson of which the original. Is how, which uh, is how that Scar which would like, have said it. Uh, of the original <laughs> Scar as, as Jeremy Irons. Now, what you get in that 
in just the voice, even though he's not a singer, right? He is talk singing through much of that song. What you get is characterization, pure characterization. You can hear the extended pinky. You can hear <laughs> the mustache twirling. It's all there in the voice. Yep. Here is Chiwetel Ejiofor as Scar. My vision is clear and wide-ranging and even encompasses you. There we go. That's that's it. <laughs> thud. You can actually hear a thud. <laughs> They've changed it from this kind of uh, syncopated, almost calypso number two, mm-hmm. a dirge, basically. Yeah. Uh, and they did it purposefully because they have to encompass a new subplot in this film, which is that the hyenas are no longer just Scar Stooges. They're this separate culture that we get a sort of a little hint that they've been pushed down on mm-hmm. by the lions. And and so the entire song is different. It's more a plea to help him as opposed to spitting invective, which is what Scar should be doing. <laughs> I walked out of the theater and I turned to Steven and I said, there's no slink in this Scar. There's no slink in this Scar. <laughs> and, and I, the original Scar was part of that slinkiness was that he's kind of runty, you know, he especially yeah. compared to Mufasa. He's the skinny brother who would never be king his mane's a different color and it's kind of and this scar is big and mean looks and like mad. he looks of. like mufasa <laughs> minus one bad fight the old scar his slinkiness was that he like brought in the other outcasts and didn't have to really lift a finger was just like hey do this revolution for me please i'll mastermind it and you all just be the hunchman mm-hmm. And this scar was absolutely murderous. His well, his eyes didn't gleam with it because they all had dead eyes. That's but true. you know, his, his, his being he 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 would have slit his throat while he slept, you yeah, know? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this film is at war with itself and I couldn't figure out why for the longest time. It took me half the film to figure it out. But I think conventionally animated musicals work so well because both the medium of animation and the genre of musical are really about expression, Mm -hmm. emotion, something Mm -hmm. that kind of bursts forth because regular life can't contain it. So in animation, laws of physics, laws of anatomy, laws of time can get contorted by intense emotion and just as that. And in musicals, everything stops dead so a dream ballet can happen or somebody can just belt out a show tune because it's the only way they can express that emotion. And when you have a conventionally animated musical, they're working in concert because we don't realize it, but those little moments, because they have become so conventional, are a little moments of like absurdism, of something stylized, of something surreal. This film's insistence on ultra realism mm-hmm. is basically just quashing the emotion, quashing the imagination, quashing the expressiveness, the fun of the original, as we've all as we've all said. You see it in that moment in uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, which we quoted Great. at the top, yep. where Nala and Simba are looking across a pond at each other, and the music is telling me they're falling in love. Feelings, and, feelings, feelings. And their faces are telling me... Cats. Cats. <laughs> Not Cats the Musical, nope. unfortunately. This might be a preview of Cats. Who knows? That's exactly right. That's what we're going to get. It's it's just, well, it's Blue Planet is happening, right, Aisha? Yeah, I mean, it, this is also especially true in it, another number that's supposed to be very expressive, I Just Can't Wait to Be King, mm-hmm. where in the original cartoon version, the animals were dancing and moving and like Busby Simba Berkeley. and Nala were like, yeah, yeah it was very Busby Berkeley. They were, Simba and Nala were perched on top of like some ostriches or something. Like, all of these fun things were happening. It was super colorful. And here it's just like, 
because they're supposed to be realistic, they kind of just sway along and the song is like bumping and it's it's just as lively, but it's like, it feels slowed down. And this has happened even in the, uh, this also has happened a lot in the other live action musicals they've done, I think in part because it's so hard to transfer um, I mean, those were live action remakes, like the Aladdin remake, where Prince Ali felt just like plotting oh, and slow. So dead. <laughs> so dead. And it's happening again here. And it's just so disappointing to see that happen. Well, uh, let's talk about the new music, can we? Uh, because uh, mm. this is the original songs by Elton John and Tim Rice used slash appropriated African rhythms and, and melodies and instruments and made them Broadway. Here... This one lets Beyonce be Beyonce to a certain extent. We get a lot more melismo than we get on a normal <laughs> Disney soundtrack. Uh, they let they let Glover riff a bit, but I agree with you, Aisha. He he was kind of s- subdued here. What do you yeah. guys think? I was not crazy about Spirit. Yeah, the, the, the Beyonce pitch, Ooh. Oscar pitch. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So like, let me put some silver lining on this cloud. The music by Lebo M, the South African composer whose voice is the first voice you mm-hmm. hear, and who was billed on this one as African music consultant. <laughs> whatever you make of that. (laughs) Um, He is the voice of the Lion King and to not have gotten him back and to not have had his fingerprints all over this would have been, I would have burnt the theater to the ground. So (laughs) so there are some really fabulous incorporations of Southern Cape music feelings that Mm -hmm. I loved, but the contemporary music that was brought in did not move me really in the slightest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had the same reaction. I thought that spirit song just kind of landed with a plop. I, for one thing, I all I remember from it was just like, Spirit! And yeah. that's kind of <laughs> it. Uh-huh. Uh, well, here's the thing, is that Spirit is like the listen of Lion King, and by listen I mean mm-hmm. the Dream Girls song mm-hmm. that they added for Beyonce mm-hmm. in 2006, which was not a good song. And But it was clearly an Oscar play, and this one I think also... This is where it felt like a mistake again, an attempt to put more Beyonce in the movie than was required. It just felt like a very modern, out of place, like anachronistic mm-hmm. song to be in this movie, even though obviously all of the songs are not a, a direct match to Africa. But like, <laughs> it just felt weird. Well, and I and we should note, we haven't heard it as of this taping, but Beyonce is doing an album, a Lion King-inspired album of songs in which she's collaborating with a lot of different people to make an album kind of about the Lion King. Hmm. Uh, let's talk a little about Beyonce, shall we? Do you guys <laughs> remember all the subtle nuance she brought to her performance in the telephone video? <laughs> she is bringing some of that. I bad got a lot girl, of girl gaga. I got a lot of you've been a bad bad girl gaga in, from <laughs> from this from this particular performance. And when Nala looks so much like all the other female lions, oh man, you need you need, yep. you need some individuality. You need some Beyonce in mm-hmm. this thing. Yeah, I. This is why I think Beyonce has never been a great actor. Is the vulnerability required? This is a performer who has shown us again and again and again that she will take the thing eighty-five thousand times to get it perfect. And when you're acting, I think some of the best performances come through when you let go. She's trying to nail a performance that asks her to open up. She read to me as very closed off. In voice acting, I think you really just got to stay open. You know who didn't stay open and yet was great was Billy Eichner, the MVP of this particular. <laughs> he plays Timon. First of all, he's got pipes, which shouldn't come as a surprise because he was a, you know, a theater major. Mm-hmm. But his Timon is basically... 
Timon on the street. <laughs> He's basically, <laughs> he comes off slightly pissed. Timon on the street. Can we hear a little bit of just the be- very beginning of Hakuna Matata? Great. Hakuna Matata. What a wonderful phrase. <laughs> it just sounds sarcastic. It's very, it's very stimpy. It's very, it's very, yeah. I, I, I mean, he, he was, I, and I don't know if they were ad libs or not. They probably weren't. But I mean, there's something about that where they give that performer and Seth Rogen, who plays Pumbaa, a little bit more room to do stuff, and that's where the film starts to succeed. That's where the film starts to come to life. Yeah, I found that pairing to be a little uneven for me because while I love the Billy Eichner performance, I was not buying into Seth Rogen as the warthog Uh (laughs) for whatever reason, in part because if you go back and listen to that Ernie Sabella performance as the original Pumbaa in the 1994 version, that Ernie Sabella performance is so magnificent. And here, Seth Rogen just kind of sounds like Seth Rogen. Yeah. and also, you know, one of the voices we haven't talked about yet is the return after 25 years of James Earl Jones as Mufasa, who still sounds great. Mm, dad to us all. That's exactly. <laughs> uh, so in the original, the only people of color in the voice cast were Mufasa and young Nala and Rafiki and the hyenas. This film corrects that to a certain extent. No Matthew Broderick <laughs> in this one. Uh, and someone pointed out on Twitter that this is a blacker Lion King. Does that mean anything to you? That makes me think of a couple of things. One is The Lion King is a distinctly African story. I wish there had been more African actors in Mm -hmm. it. Two actors that I want to specifically point out are Florence Kasumba, who played the hyena queen, Mm -hmm. and John Canny, who is from the Eastern Cape in South Africa. um, And he plays Rafiki, and he brings the Isikosa. He's the one speaking in... um, in various Bantu languages. Those performances are so important to me and I think important to have in a Disney movie, but I wanted there to be more. So like, yes, give me a blacker Lion King. Now give me a more African Lion King. Like more, more, more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that made the original a little problematic was the fact that there were black voices. It's just right. that one of those black voices was a singing voice mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for Jonathan Taylor Thomas's character. So sure. Jason Weaver, um, who was a pretty well-known, he, he was one of those like child black actors who was in everything in the 90s. But he played the singing voice of Simba. So you, you could go into a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of things Oof. to pull from that. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> you know, minstrelsy and stealing of voices, whatever. But I, I agree that I see this as a very black film even the original as a very black film in many ways. And I think that taking it a step further in the way that the Broadway version did, in which most of the Broadway cast in the original, and I think like since, has been mostly actors of color Mm -hmm. playing those roles, um, I think is really important. Now, do I still think that like this didn't need to be made? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad they cast mostly black people in these roles. But like, again, this was such a hollow exercise. <laughs> and um, if I had kids, I don't think I would want to take them to see this, especially if they were under the age of like five, because this movie is actually kind of terrifying in a way that the original was not. All right. So tell us what you think about The Lion King. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it will be time to talk about what's making us happy this week. So stick around. The following message comes from our sponsor, Chipotle. April Wilson, hog farmer for a Chipotle pork supplier, reflects on how her family has seen the number of family farms decreasing. My dad talks about getting on the bus and there were 
15 kids that got on the bus within four miles, and now there's maybe five kids that get on the bus in that same four miles. Like, it's just amazing to see the changes. To learn more about how Chipotle is working to reinvigorate farming, go to chipotle.com farmers. This message comes from NPR sponsor Traditional Medicinals. Traditional Medicinals is the herbal tea company that lives up to its name. Traditional because of the formulas based on herbal traditions that have supported health and wellness for centuries. And medicinal because of the ethically sourced high-quality herbs like wild-collected Shisandra berries in their everyday detox tea. Use promo code NPR for 20% off at checkout. Powered by Traditional Medicinals. Support also comes from Georgetown's School of Continuing Studies, where you can earn a master's degree or professional certificate downtown or online. All options, all Georgetown. Learn more at scs.georgetown.edu. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week. And every week, what is making us happy this week? Stephen, what's making you happy this week? So a piece of service journalism about a piece of service journalism that everybody except me already knows about, wire cutter. Ah. I did not know this was a thing until Katie told me about it like four days ago, where the New York Times acquired this gadget review site, basically a consumer reports style site, and just tells you what to buy. I I had absolutely no, I knew, I've known about consumer reports since yeah. somehow before I was born, yeah. but Wirecutter understands that I don't want to actually read about the things I want to buy. I just want to be told, buy this dummy, click here, <laughs> and then it just shows up. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah. it is absolutely uncanny how much easier this site has already made my drab gray life. Tell me what to buy, wirecutter.com. Thank you for existing. Oof, I did Thompson. not know this existed. Yeah, Stephen Thompson going full dad. Full dad on <laughs> so it. So full dad. Oh my wow. God. Katie, what is making you happy this week? A couple of months ago, I discovered a book. And when you are a book person, the discovery of a book that no one else around you has read is like a drug. And you get bragging rights forever. So I discovered this little book called Maud's Line by Margaret Verbal. I breezed into work that day and I was like, gather around, y'all. I read a great book. You've never heard of it. Yada, yada, yada. It was shortlisted for the Pulitzer. (laughs) Nobody discovered anything. But the fact remains, I read an amazing book. So it takes place in eastern Oklahoma in 1928. It follows an 18-year-old young woman named Maud Nail. She's part Cherokee, and she lives on a Cherokee allotment, which is what Maud's line mean. It means the lines of her her family's allotment. It's a slow-moving book. It's slight but so richly drawn that it's completely immersive every step of the way. If you are from the middle part of the country or a Westerner in any way, I think the way that this book describes wide open space and people living close to the land will hit you right right in the sternum as it did me. It's earthy, it's sensual, sometimes it's downright sexy, And then there's this beautiful little love story in the middle of it, which is very Brooklynian, like the movie Brooklyn, where her choice basically boils down to boy from around the way versus boy who means a new life. So I cannot recommend it highly enough. Maud's line, the author is Margaret Verbal. Oh, I have just written that down. Thank you so much, Katie. Mm -hmm. 
Aisha Harris, what's making you happy this week? Just a couple days ago, I actually stumbled upon a movie that is, uh, it's a little well-known, maybe not as well-known as other movies, but uh, it's called Mother. And this is not uh. Mother with an exclamation point from a few years ago, that perplexing, overwrought Darren Aronofsky <laughs> mm-hmm. movie <laughs> starring Jennifer Lawrence, mm-hmm. <laughs> but rather Mother, directed by Albert Brooks mm-hmm. from 1996. I think it resurfaced briefly a couple years ago, right after Debbie Reynolds died, um, as a movie that you should definitely check out and I did not check it out then but I'm glad I stumbled upon it now. Essentially Debbie Reynolds plays Albert Brooks's mother and Albert Brooks is this like successful science fiction writer who is just gone through his second divorce and he's trying to figure out like why do I have so much bad luck with women? Why don't they understand me? And so he decides it must be my mother. And even though this sounds like a kind of you know potentially misogynistic uh, exploration of mommy issues through mm-hmm. Albert Brooks the uh, well-known neurotic he's he loves to play those characters. It actually turns out to be very lovely, smart, uh, intuitive. Brooks wrote, co-wrote the movie with Monica Johnson, so there is a female perspective in there, and I think that that really lends itself especially to the last part of the film and sort of a big reveal that happens later on. But I love their dynamic. I love Debbie Reynolds. She's just so, like... Every if you loved her in Singing in the Rain, it's like obviously a much older, more mature version of her, but like there's still that sort of bubbling crackliness there. So I highly recommend Mother. It is streaming. I watched it on the Criterion channel. I think it's going to be there until the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you should definitely check it out if you can. Thank you, Aisha. That is a great pick. Uh, I mentioned the HBO BBC series Years and Years in the newsletter a few weeks back. Uh, after seeing only one episode, I've now seen two. Uh, I'm going through it slowly because it is, it is not the kind of show you can binge. It's a little uh, intense. It's about a large British family that gets caught up in the slow, steady dissolution of society. <laughs> uh, and it starts in the present day, and it, then everything just sort of smears forward in time, just by a few years at a time, with a very grounded and not entirely optimistic view of where we're headed. But everything that's happening in those few years ahead are based on what's happening now. As climate change, uh, as, as institutions collapse, as humanity just keeps getting dumber and dumber, this family is clinging together. It is chilling the number of times somebody on screen says, no, it'll be all right. No, we'll be fine. <laughs> because, <laughs> because it won't. Uh, uh, what's making me happy is the work Russell Davies is doing with characterization. There's a moment in the second episode where the family individually learns uh, something upsetting about one of the sisters. And then we see the various brothers and sisters calling her and expressing their concerns, but they do it in a very different ways which echo their characters, which is just smart. This is how you do characterization. This person would say that. This person would react this way. I'm only two episodes in, and I'm already caught up like that. So it's a, it's a really nice moment of human connection in a show about people struggling to connect as the world falls apart. And that's what's <laughs> hey. making me happy. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at G.H. Weldon. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can follow Katie at Love is Maroon. You can follow Aisha at Crafting My Style. You can follow producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzif. And Mike Katzif, that's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band Hello Come In is providing the music you could feasibly be bobbing your head to right now if that's a thing you choose to do. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please subscribe to our newsletter at npr.org slash popculturenewsletter. And we will see you all next week. 
We spend millions of hours and billions of dollars on video games, but can consoles still compete with the next level of streaming and subscriber services? I'm Joshua Johnson. Subscribe to 1A on NPR as we consider the future of gaming.